Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Well, when I was a kid, Hot Wheels were pretty simple. I mean, you you had your cars, you had an oval track, maybe a figure eight, every now and again a loop-de-loop. That's it. Simple, easy to construct, nothing big. Well, times have changed over the last few decades, and so my son had a Hot Wheels track. I got the box, just dumped the parts out, thinking, how hard could it be? This is going to be simple. And I start piecing things together, and it didn't take long to realize that what was in front of me didn't really look much like the picture on the box. I mean, this thing had all these dynamic moving parts. It had 10 stories and totally different game than what I was used to. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. I mean, he's gonna be the architect of this thing. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. In other words, that he's gonna build his church in such a way that not only will it stand against hard times, but it's even gonna push back the darkness we have in the world. And so like a Hot Wheels track, if that's the picture on the front of the box of what we're supposed to look like, is that who we are? Because if we wanna be a church that's going, to, that's going to endure through erratic times, that's going to advance through adversity, we're gonna need to be the type of church that Jesus is building. Well, Acts chapter 14 gives us a couple of things that help us to build out what the church should look like, especially what a church that can endure can endure should look like. So let's look at Acts chapter 14. I've got four points that we're going to walk through, four things the church should be to endure. The first one is committed to God's word, verses one through seven. So the first point, the first thing we want to be as a church to endure as a church that is committed to God's word. Look at verses one through seven. It says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So the the they here is Paul and Barnabas. They're on a missionary journey and their rhythm is generally when they show up to a town, if there is a Jewish presence, they start in the synagogue, then work their way out. So they start off in the synagogue and they're preaching truth. And it says a great number of people believed. Now, when I share my faith with people, when I talk to people in town, whether they have a a background in church or not, when you say something like, you know, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have life everlasting, that idea of all you have to do is believe can seem a little bit ambiguous. Like, believe what? Like, believe Jesus was real? Okay, like, am I good? Well, there are two different types of belief. There is passive belief, and there is active belief, okay? Passive belief. Let's say that, that you're like, I put on some COVID pounds and you're like, I should lose some weight. And you're thinking like, I believe to get in shape, I should work out, I should eat healthy food, and I should get some vitamin D. Like th- those would be good things if I wanna get back in shape. You can believe those things are good, but you can then choose to continue to sleep in to continue to pound your kids' snacks in the closet and to do nothing, right? Like you, can, you can believe it and not do anything. That's a passive belief. But active belief is believing something enough to change. 
It's believing something enough to change what you do. And so if I believe this is good and then start working out, start eating better, start getting outside, it's, it's a different type of belief. It's not passive belief, it's active belief. So the biblical belief we see being exercised here in Acts 14, the biblical belief we see in the book of John, who John wrote the gospel according to John so that you might believe is active belief. It's believing in Jesus enough that through his power, you will reorient your life around who he is and what he has done. It's believing in him enough to reorient your life around who he is and what he's done. So all these people, many people, a great number, are actively believing in Jesus to the point that their life is beginning to change. Verses two and three, it says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly. If you take notes, just take note real quick of that phrase, speaking boldly. Speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. All right, take note of that phrase, the word of his grace. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Okay, so then it goes on to verse four. It says, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. So people are like, we're gonna stone these guys who don't like what they're saying. They learned of it, fled to Lystria and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Take note of that word, the gospel, okay? Now, what I want you to see is that the, the phrase or the word, the gospel, and the phrase that we saw in verse three, the word of his grace, that's two ways of saying the same thing. A third way is to say good news. So we're gonna see all three of those phrases in chapter 14. It's saying the same thing. It's this commitment to the gospel. It's this commitment to God's word. And so what it says here is that as they went to these towns, they were committed to the word of God by speaking boldly, right? So if you want to like, what do they speak boldly about? Well, as you read through the New Testament, you actually get a picture of the teachings of the apostles, the things that they were teaching to these churches as they made these missionary journeys. And so as you read through these letters, whether it's Romans or 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or um, Galatians or Colossians or Ephesians or Philippians, like you just read through, you'll see that they spoke boldly on who Jesus is. So they talked about Jesus. He's not just a good moral teacher. He's not some mythological person. He's not a ghost. He's not a crazy person. He's not an evil person, but he is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh who has come to save the world. He has come to seek and save that which is lost. He has come to establish a new rule and reign, a new kingdom. And they were bold about that. Like this is who Jesus is. They were also bold about sin. I mean, like, as you read through these letters, they're very upfront that there are things that are moral absolutes. There are sin that haven't changed. It's not like, well, that was wrong 2,000 years ago, but now times are different. It's a little different now, so that's not wrong. And we're like, no, no, sin is sin, and they called it for what it was. We see that there is sin that are actions, things that we do. There is sin that's deeper than action. It's this attitude of, God, I think I know better than you, but it's ultimately a condition that we inherit, a sin nature. And the result of that sin is that we are separated from God. 
We are separated from God because of that sin. We are deserving of his wrath. And in our culture today, people are like, nah, we don't want to paint God as a God who could ever be wrathful towards sin. Let's just say he's only love. Is God gracious and loving? Absolutely. We have to hold that in the highest, the highest regards, but we have to balance it that he is also holy and just, right? We cannot throw one out. We can't elevate one above the other. And so because of his holiness, because of his justice, our sin is deserving of his wrath, which is bad news to be separated from God in, in, in line to receive his wrath. That's the bad news. But they're also bold about the cross. They're bold about what Jesus has done, that he lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the sinner's death, which we deserved. He rose again victorious from the grave. He is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned and that he has established a new kingdom, a new reign. And he has saved us not only from our sin, but he saved us for a new life. He has saved us for a new life. And then they are bold about the reality of if, if that's who Jesus is, that's who we were, that's what Jesus has done. They're also bold about who we now are, that we're no longer enemies of God. We are now his friends. We are no longer in, in, in line to receive his justice and wrath. We get his love and grace. They're bold to let us know that we're no longer seen by God as sinners, but our identity is now that he sees us as saints, as those who have lived the life that Christ has lived. It says that we are a new creation. And so we want to live through the power of Jesus in us as Jesus would live if he were in our shoes. And like, this is all these things that they are bold about. And so when it says in verse one, that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed, it's saying they believe these things. They believed about who Jesus is, about their sin and who they were, what Jesus has done, who they're becoming enough to begin to reorient their lives around who Jesus is as Lord and Savior. So they were bold. They were committed to the word of God, right? The next thing we see is that they had a cultural awareness, Right? They had a cultural awareness. So not only were they committed to God's word, but they had a cultural awareness. Let's pick up in verse eight. It says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you will know that this is very similar to what happened in chapter three. It's a parallel story. In chapter three, the apostle Peter heals a crippled guy who is begging. And now we see Paul doing the same thing, only the responses are totally different. In chapter three, the crowds gather and Peter's like, let me tell you about my Jesus, right? And now we see them and what they do is they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. All right, so why would they do that? Well, if you study this area historically, what happened about 50 years prior to this event, about 50 years prior to Paul's missionary journey, there was a poet who came through this region. And this poet, to make sense of a catastrophic event, right? So imagine a catastrophic event happening. To make sense of the catastrophic event, talked about how Zeus and Hermes came to this region incognito. They came disguised as humans and they were looking for people to show them hospitality, but no one would. 
Only an old poor couple showed them hospitality in their poverty. And as a result, Zeus and Hermes came and destroyed this area. So imagine that being the folklore in this region. And then you see a guy heal a man and you're thinking, is that a God incognito? If we do this wrong, they might come and destroy us. So not today. Like, you're not getting us today. We're going we're gonna to worship you. And so they start to worship Paul and Barnabas. And let's see how they respond. Thinking that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, this is how Paul responds. It says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and bring you Good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. All right, so there you see that phrase, good news, same as gospel, same as the word of his grace. And so our response to the good news should be repentance. And now if, if you grew up in church, maybe you've heard this explained different ways, or maybe you, you've never grown up in church and you're like, I don't really like that churchy language. I wanted to ex explain as simply as I can what repentance is. Repentance is turning from, which you see in verse 15, turning from and turning to, right? So it says, turn from these vain things and turn to a living God. And so when you repent, it's like, hey, I'm, my attitude is this way or my actions are doing this, and I know that's not how God has designed me to be. I know that's not how Jesus would live if he were in my shoes. And so you turn from that and say, I wanna pursue Christ. I wanna pursue living my life as he would live instead. So it's turning from something into something. So what we see here is we see the gospel and we see how we are to respond through repentance or through turning from vain things and turning to a living God. Then it says, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. That's so important, right? He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. All right, so what's happening here is these people, one commentary I was reading said these people were backwoods. I was like, that's kind of offensive to us in Appalachia, right? Either way, it's like these, these people were backwards. In other words, a lot of the cities that Paul and Barnabas went to were there, there was a high affluency. There were, there were cultural hubs, so people had diverse cultures. People were well-educated. This is probably the, the least educated place that Paul does a missionary journey in, right? And so a lot of places he goes, people are educated, people would have a basic concept of scripture and knowledge of that. And so what do they do? In most places, they start with God's word because God's word is known. But here, God's word is not known. So instead of starting with something that people don't know, they start with something that people do know. What do they know? They know nature. They know creation. He's like, hey, look at the sky. You see those birds up there? And look at the, look at the mountains behind us. And you know beyond that is a great sea and, and everything that's in the woods and in the sea. Like God created that. So you might be here thinking that God is distant and disinterested. You might feel like that God is far off, that he's just left you, got, left you behind. But I'm telling you that he did good by giving you rains from your hearts, rains for, for fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What he's talking about here is what we would call um, general revelation. 
there is specific revelation where God reveals himself to us through his word. So when you read scripture, it's like that is God specifically revealing himself to you in a way that you can understand it. But then there is general revelation where God is revealing himself to us through natural means, like the world we're in. And so what Paul is doing by looking at the natural world that we all get to experience, he's saying, look, God's not distant and disinterested. All this stuff that you're looking at is him getting your attention. All this stuff, all this good stuff that you're experiencing is God getting your attention. So here's how they're culturally aware. There are dots that exist in every culture. And the job of the Christian who is giving witness to who God is, is to help people to connect those dots, right? And so they're culturally aware enough to know that a dot that does not exist for these people is the Hebrew scripture. So they're not gonna create that dot and try to connect it, right? They're not, so they're looking with the dots that they do have, which is general revelation, the creation around them, right? So for us, if we wanna be culturally aware, we have to understand the dots of our culture and be able to engage with people to help connect those. And so, for instance, I was reading an article about how evangelism has changed over the last 20 years. And so when I was in youth, um, there was something we did called Evangelism Explosion, and it taught us how to connect the dots, you know? And so what happened, though, is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were basic things that our culture in America accepted. It It was generally accepted that there was a God. It was generally accepted that there were moral absolutes. It was generally accepted that the Bible could be a respected form of literature. It was generally accepted that, that, that you were searching to know who God was. Like, and so what you would do is you would witness people is talk like, hey, you're looking for God, his name is Jesus. And all these moral things, like this is your sin and where you've fallen short, you've missed the mark, but the good news is this. And we're trying to help you scripture to connect the dots. Let me read to you Romans 3.23. Let me read to you Romans 6.23. Let me read to you. And we're trying to use scripture and people would just help connect those dots. Well, what they've shown now is in our culture, those dots no longer exist. So if we're using an evangelism strategy from the 90s, it's not going to work because those dots no longer exist. There's no dots to connect. So if you're like, you know, you, you probably believe there's a God. You're like, actually, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there's a God. Or I'm an agnostic. I believe that there, there might be a God, but if there is a God or gods, how can we know them? And so that dot of there is a God, gone. Oh, moral absolutes. Like, well, let's talk about moral absolutes. Well, have you ever done this? Because God calls that sin. Well, that might be sin for you, but it's not sin for me. It's like as if the field goal has changed. And so all of a sudden, morality is something that's not objective, but subjective. So now there's no longer the dot of moral absolutes. Or what about scripture? Like, hey, let's, let's see what God's word says. If you're like, you trust that thing? This is an ancient document. You really believe this has been handed down accurately over the last 2,000 years, translated into all these different languages and different people? Like, you can't trust this. It's full of errors, which I completely disagree with, and I could refute anybody who makes that claim, but that's the statement that's coming out there. That dot no longer exists. All right, so what I love is Tim Keller has says this. He says, we have to find a way to take the plot line of our culture and give it a better ending in Jesus. So we have to be able to do is to say, okay, what are the dots that our culture has and how do we connect them? Okay, people who don't believe in a God, but a lot of people are searching for something bigger than themselves. Okay, there's a dot. 
right? People don't necessarily believe in moral absolutes, but it seems like there's a longing for justice. Hmm, that's a dot. Okay, why are so many people searching for identity? Okay, there's another dot. So we need to look and say, how can we engage our culture to be culturally aware enough to know what are our people searching for? How can we engage that plot line and give it a better ending by showing people what they're truly longing for is Jesus. You see, that's the work of the evangelist. And that's what it's going to take for us to be a culturally aware church. If we want to not only survive hard times, but continue to advance God's kingdom forth, we need to be committed to God's word and we need to be culturally aware. All right, let's keep going. 19 says, but Jews came from Antioch in Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I mean, this is an incredible moment. Like, here's Paul just doing his best to help these people see nature is pointing to God. A crowd from the other town show up, rally the troops. They're like, let's stone them. They're like, get the rocks. And they stone this guy to the point that he drops down. They think he's dead. And dra- I don't think it grabbed his ankles. Like, you get his legs, right? And like, they drag him out to the edge of town. Like, he's dead. Just leave him here. And they walk away. Right? This had to have been an emotional roller coaster for Paul, but it's paralleling how Paul's life was very similar to Jesus's life. Think about it. Jesus rides into town on a donkey. What are the crowd saying? Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. A week later, they're like, crucify him. Like, kill the guy. Same way. A week later, or a day earlier, people are looking at Paul and being like, is he a God? Make sacrifices, worship him. Now they're like, get the rocks. Right, like here's Paul getting stoned. I don't, know if, I don't know if you ever grew up watching movies you shouldn't watch, but I was a kid watching Halloween with Michael Myers. That'll freak you out when you're five. You know, it's like, like but they would always think Michael Myers was dead and what would happen? Anybody ever watch Halloween? You're like, you guys are way more holy than me. You're like, like we only watch VeggieTales. All right, so either way, like, like he's dead. He just gets up and walks away. Like that's Paul before Halloween was a thing. Like Paul, like, like he's dead. And look at verse 20. It says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city on the next day. He went on with Barnabas to Derby. So he's like, gets up. He's like, knocked down, but not knocked out. Like, let's do this. Goes back into town. Then he hits a journey. There's an 18th century, and this is like a 60 mile journey he makes to Derby. This isn't like he just walked across town. He's, he's walking. There was an 18th century British pastor who talked about walking through the snow and seeing a hare that had been injured and it left a trail of blood through the snow. And he goes, that is a picture of Paul's missionary journey throughout the, throughout the region of Europe. It's like just bloody trail behind him as he walks from town to town, committed to God's word. All right, let's look at verses 21 through 22. This is just gonna further the point that they were committed to God's word. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And, um, and so, so they continue to be committed to the gospel. They continue to meet with people to disciple them. And those words, strengthening and encouraging, are actually verbs that, that have, the, they have the weight of fortifying something. So it's like we're trying to make the church strong. We're trying to establish a church that can withstand or endure erratic times. We're trying to establish a church that's not only fortified, but can can advance even in the midst of adversity. So we've got two things that enable them to do this so far, a commitment to God's word and a cultural awareness. The last two are seen in verse 23. 
It says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the third point is, is they had called out leadership. 30, verses 23, the first part, called out leadership. Let me explain what I mean by called out leadership because I was trying to go with four C's, best I could do, all right? We could also just call it healthy leadership. But called out leadership, um, think about this. If you gather a group of people, you're like, hey, the church is a gathered group of people. It's not a building, it's not programs, it's people. So we're just gonna get together in a house and we're gonna, we're gonna practice the way of Jesus. We're gonna study scripture together. We're gonna spend time in prayer and we're gonna do the things that Jesus would do. Is that something that's good? Yes. Like, I hope you're living that way. Like, hey, I wanna live with people and live the way of Jesus, right? I wanna be an apprentice to Jesus in the way that I live my life. Is, but what makes that gathering different than the church gathering, right? What's the difference? Like, are you a church if you're just gathering with a group of believers? Like, we're two or three are gathered. He's here, like, we're a church. Are you a church if you're just gathering with people? I would say no. Because as you study the New Testament, you realize that it's not only a gathering of people, but God has established a structure for us. He has structured his church very intentionally through leadership, where Jesus rules this thing, but elders are called to lead it. So within the congregation, right, it's not like an outsider, but within the congregation, there are people who are called out for the purpose of shepherding God's people, protecting them instructing them and teaching God's word to encourage and strengthen them. And, and, and so there are people who are called to care for them. And so there are people who are called out for the purpose of leading the church. And so as we study things like Titus chapter one, verses five through nine, as we study first Timothy three, one through seven, what we see is that God has designed his church to have healthy leaders with high character to lead his people. God has designed his church to have healthy leaders with high character to lead his people, to shepherd his people, All right? And he says this is a calling that not many should aspire to. So it's not just do you have the character, do you have the competency, it's are you called? And so God wants to call out people to help lead the church. And so a healthy church needs healthy leadership. So we need to be committed to God's word, we need to be culturally aware, and we need to have people in leadership positions that are healthy in leading the church. And the final thing we see in verse 23, the last part, is that they had a confidence in the Lord. It says, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. All right, and the them there, if you're like committed them, the them actually ties back, not just to the elders, but also to those who are being strengthening and strengthened and encouraged. So it's the whole church. They committed, so whenever they would plant a church and leave, because if you think about this missionary journey, he's like, start a church here. Let's go over here. Start a church here. Let's start a church here. And they're just like, like, like they're just leaving. You're like, that church is going to mess things up, which they did. That's why they wrote letters to him, right? But either way, it's like, they're, like how do they have the confidence to start a church and then leave it? Well, every church they left was a church that had healthy leadership. It was a church that they had confidence not in the people's strength, but the strength of Christ in the people. Right? So their confidence wasn't in the talents that that church had. So it wasn't like, well, this church, they've got a great, a great preaching ministry, and, and this church has a great worship team, and this church has a great prayer team, and this church has great servants. It's like, they've got all the talent in the world. Like, we're good. Now we're going to walk away. It's like, no, no. Their confidence wasn't in the people's talent. Their confidence, wasn't, their confidence wasn't in the strength of the people they were leaving. Their confidence was the strength of Christ in the people they were leaving. 
So look, this might be the most important thing you hear me say today. Because for Redeemer to be a healthy church, we have to be confident in the Lord. We have to be confident not in our strength, but in Christ's strength. So I'm sitting up here right now, been up since 2 a.m. because of a stupid pipe in my house. And do you know what I'm preaching today from? I'm sitting there going, God, if you don't show up, I'm not gonna make it. I'm not preaching in my strength right now because if you were in the worship gathering, planning meeting before this, we go upstairs and we huddle before the worship service. Everyone in that room is like, Jeff, you're making no sense. And I was like, this is not gonna go well when I preach. And maybe you're sitting here like going like, you're not making sense, which is great. But my confidence is not in my strength to preach exhausted. My confidence is that Christ will speak through me and empower me in this moment. And that's true of everything we do as a church. And so if you're sitting here and you're like, Jeff, I can't lead a small group. Like I don't know enough. I would say you can't, but Christ in you can. If you're sitting here going like, Jeff, there's no way that I can culturally engage someone at my workplace and help them to connect any dots because I'm just not that intelligent. I'm saying you can't, but Christ in you can. Look, I'm telling you, when we begin to operate as a people that have confidence in Christ in us, that's going to give us the ability not to only endure in erratic times when culture pushes in and presses in on us. That's not only, that's, that's gonna, the confidence of Christ in us is what gives us the ability to endure, but also it's the confidence that we have and the ability we have to advance God's kingdom in the midst of adversity. We have to be confident in the work of the Holy Spirit that is given to every person who is in Christ. That's our confidence. Right? So when I think about Redeemer, it's like, how are we going to make it? People are like, master coming back again? Like, what in the world? Are we going to tank budget? Like, someone pulled out X amount from the tithe? Like, are we going to make it? My confidence is not in us, it's in Christ. And I know that Jesus loves this church, and I believe that we're going to not only stand and endure, I believe that we're going to be a part of advancing his kingdom here because God is our confidence. So how do we be a church that if Matthew 16 is the box And Acts 14 is the picture on the front of it. If we're going to be a church that looks like that, what do we have to be? we got to be committed to God's word. So if you show up here week in and week out, we're going to be preaching from this word, trusting it to be powerful. We want to be culturally aware, which isn't just us as a church. That's you as the people of God being culturally aware in the places God has put you. We want to have healthy leadership here, which you enable us to do. Like, we don't talk about money a lot here, but when people give and it allows us to, to pay staff, that's part of what it takes for us to be like, hey, you know, we, we don't have to go work two other jobs to make ends meet, but we can focus fully on the ministry because of your generosity. That's something that helps us to stay healthy, to, to be, have a healthy work rest rhythm. So thank you for that. But we want to be healthy and we want to be confident in the Lord of Christ strengthen us. If we will do these things, I promise you, We're going to endure no matter how erratic the times are, and we're going to advance no matter how hard the adversity is. God, thank you for your word. We trust that this is a church that you love. God, I find myself all the time just sitting back and almost chuckling because it's so evident that you love this people. You love us, and you're about us, and you're for us, and God, we want to lean into that and be a church that's the best expression of your kingdom that we can be. Because we know that things are gonna get tougher um, as time goes on, that you're gonna, you're gonna make it more and more black and white on who's following you and who's not. 
And God, it's going to be harder in our culture to identify as, as, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. But God, that's not going to shake us. It's not going to stop us because we are following you and we are part of your kingdom advance. God, and we know that at the end of the day, you get the last word. God, we want to be a part of what you're doing here. So help us. Help us to be a part of what you're doing in our city, in our region, and to the world. In name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.